0: The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Exodus 34, verses 1 to 9. Exodus 34, verses 1 to 9. You'll be able to find that on page 101 of your pew Bible. The songs which we have sung may seem rather heavy to us. This would have been the uh, sentiment of many of the Israelites that are found in our Passage today as well. they're very heavy-hearted. So Moses has gone up Mount Sinai once, and in an amazing way, he's received the law from the Lord. Uh, but during this time when he was up on the mountain, then the people, they left worshiping God the way they were called to, and they built for themselves a golden calf. And then Moses has come down the mountain. And uh, he threw down the two tablets of stone and shattered them. And God inflicted a great punishment on the people of Israel by the hands of their brothers. And so they are under the weight. They're really feeling the weight of their own sin. And it's here where we come back into our passage. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the ground and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, Let my Lord, I pray, go among us even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So far the word of God. We'll now go to the summary of God's word that we find in Lord's Day 23 under the heading Our Justification. And you'll be able to find that on page 537 of your book of praise. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God without any merit of my own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you're righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever stood back and asked yourself, what's the point Sunday after Sunday, I come to church again. I hear the minister giving a sermon. I've gone to catechism class for years now, being taught things about the Bible. I have learned about who Jesus Christ is. What's the point of all of this? Our Catechism today asks us this same question. It's just moved its way through, working through the Apostles' Creed, question by question. This summary of the Christian faith, beginning first with God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and moving step by step through the work of the triune God, and then the work of God through His people here on earth. Having summarized all of that and given us much information, the Catechism then asks us, what does it help you now that you believe all this? Today, we run into a very similar question that must have been running through the minds of the Israelites as they were standing around the base of Mount Sinai. When they were first brought out of Israel, they must have felt pretty special. God had brought them out with power, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. He had rained down hail from heaven on their enemies and oppressors. He had inflicted them with plagues of darkness, plagues of water turning into blood. He had led them through the Red Sea. And yet now they've come to the base of the mountain and they've fallen into great sin. And then they've been punished for that sin. God had been grieved by what they had done. And then we also can think of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where he says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. There wasn't anything special about you personally that drew God to choose you. And so they are standing at the bottom of this mountain, seeing Moses go back up once again. And this question must have been rattling through their minds. We've seen what God has done to deliver us, but we've also seen what He has done to rebuke sin. And this is a frightening thing. What's the point of all of this? Today, we will look at this under the following theme and points. I believe all this. So what? And first of all, we'll see, I stand accused. And secondly, I stand redeemed. As we've seen, this is the second time that Moses is being sent up the mountain to give, be given the law. The first time the people had known that he was up on Mount Sinai and there was fire and gloom and smoke and they were told that not even an animal was to touch the mountain or it would die. And after it seemed he wasn't coming back, they went back and built themselves a golden calf to worship God in the way that they saw fit. They couldn't even last a full month without leadership before plunging back into idolatry, back into the sins that they knew and the sins that they were comfortable with during their time in Egypt. And it grieved God. But as our catechism points out today, we ourselves are found right in the mix with them. Our catechism says, I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined towards all evil. Does that seem a little bit harsh to you? Having seen these Israelites at the foot of the mountain devolving into what they had known from Egypt, following the sins that they had brought with them, and putting ourselves right into that same camp. Well, this is what God speaks to us when He's speaking through the Apostle, says to us when He's speaking through the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 as well. He says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. That's God's evaluation of the human race. That's what God says about those Israelites who are at the bottom of the mountain. But that is also what He says about you and me in our natural state. That's who we are as human beings. The question comes up, the natural reply comes up. Don't I get any credit for when I was obedient? Doesn't God owe me something for sticking to what was right, even in the face of suffering? I had a tough marriage situation, but I stood strong. I faced up against someone who was bullying someone else in school. Doesn't God owe me something for that? Don't I get at least a little bit of righteousness credited to my account for that? But the Bible makes it quite clear that there is no credit program when it comes to the law. Romans 3, verse 20 By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, that is, be declared righteous in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. When you obey the law, you are just doing what you are called to do. You are only meeting a standard. But meeting that perfect standard won't help you. Because you and I, we fail to meet that standard a whole lot more than we actually do meet it. And that's the point of the law, God tells us. The whole purpose of the law is to bring in a knowledge and a recognition of our sin in our lives. But even if we didn't have the law, we would recognize that we fall short. And our catechism points to this as well, doesn't it? Even if we didn't have the law written out, the catechism points out, our consciences would accuse us. All of us stand guilty, even in the court in which we alone are the judges we do things that we ought not to. We do not do the things that we ought to. That feeling of guilt that we have after we don't measure up even to our own tribunal within our hearts, that accuses us. So your conscience condemns you and the law convicts you. By all rights, you stand as guilty. And if you've been following along as we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, section by section, you know this already. You understand that you stand in your natural state as guilty before God. But you also understand more. Let's go to our passage and look at that once again. Israel has had their guilt exposed. They've experienced some consequence of their sin already. And if there was any point in which they might have felt that they were somehow more worthy than the people around them, more righteous than the nations who were around them, well, this took it away from them. That feeling is gone. And it's in this moment in time that Moses once again wearily makes his way back up the mountain. The land around the mountain has once again been cleared of people and animals in accordance with God's word and because of his holiness. No one and nothing else can come before him without dying except the one man whom he has invited to draw near. And then comes our passage. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. Note there, He's drawing attention again to his covenant name. He is still the God who has made a covenant with them. Lord in capital letters is the name he has given them as a sign for that covenant. He still has that relationship with them even after what they've done. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds pretty good so far, right? But look at what follows here. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So how is this possible? How is it possible that God can have mercy, forgive iniquity, and yet by no means clear the guilty? Isn't there a contradiction that is going on here? In any other situation, if it was a human that was on the other end of it, there might be. But God Himself has granted a solution Himself that overcomes those kinds of barriers. What does our catechism say in response to all this? What did the Israelites have to look forward to? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. So we come back to that question, what does it help you that you believe all this? What does it help you that you believe in everything that you've confessed in the Apostles Creed from Lord's Day 7 to 22 about who God is, what Christ has done, and the life that you live and look forward to? How does it help you that you believe this Bible summary? This is how it helps you. In Christ, I am righteous before God, and heir to life everlasting. This is what it means to truly believe these statements that's put forward by the Apostles' Creed and having been drawn from Scripture itself. If you have faith, if you truly believe in what you have confessed with your lips, you are righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. But what happens to our sin? We read of God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's true. But what about the next part? By no means clearing the guilty. How does that play into it? Some Jewish commentators on this passage have said in the past that it means that he clears those who repent but does not clear those who do not repent. But God himself has a different view on this. He's a holy God. Isaiah 59, verse 2, points out how iniquities separate us from God. They create a barrier. And Habakkuk 1, verse 13, puts it even more starkly when the prophet writes there, You, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Now, the the point here is not that God can't be in the same place as sin, God is omnipresent, He is present everywhere. Rather, the point is that God can't dismiss sin. He can't look upon it as if it's nothing. God is holy, righteous, and pure, and therefore sin needs to be dealt with completely. You don't just talk about a little bit of sin being okay with God any more than uh, finding a dead mouse would be okay in a little corner of your apple pie just throw that piece of, with a mouse in it and the rest of the pie should be okay, shouldn't it? No. And in the same way, sin corrupts the whole man. It's not something that you just say you're sorry about and then you move on and it gets swept under the rug. Sin needs to be dealt with. And the Old Testament people of God understood this well. That's where the sacrifices came in, time and time again. They pointed to the fact that the human being who offered them was the one who deserved to be on that altar, slaughtered before God. They symbolically had whatever animal it was that was placed on the altar take the place of the person who was offering them. But here's the catch these offerings were insufficient. They weren't enough. We read in Hebrews 10 about how the law can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year make those who approach perfect. But in those sacrifices, there is still a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And the Old Testament people of God had some sense of that. Yes, God is a merciful God. He is a merciful God. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 7 of Exodus 34. And an animal itself cannot bear the weight of the wrath of God against humanity. And that's where the need for something better was revealed. You see, there's a gap that needs to be bridged. God is a merciful God, but he's also a just God. And sin committed against the most high majesty of God must be paid for. And that's where the people of Israel, that's where they ran into difficulty. That's where they found all the more joy as they looked forward to the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The sacrifices themselves were not enough. And as the sacrifices were offered year after year after year, and they saw their nation fall back into sin year after year, going through the cycle of the judges, going through the cycle of the kings that came after, and under one prophet after another, it wasn't enough. But then we find the prophecy of someone who is coming, someone who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And more than that, we read in Isaiah 53, verse 6, this word for the people of Israel. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That servant has come in the person of Christ. The price is paid. You stand redeemed. And that is how we are able to bridge that gap in our passage. How can the Lord be the one who punishes guilt by no means letting it off? while still being a merciful and forgiving god by letting his own son come to earth and bear that punishment on our behalf by laying on him the iniquity the sin the the sin of all who believe in him that is who god pointed the old testament nation of israel to this is a wake up call for us beloved because it emphasizes the fact that sin comes with a cost. Sin doesn't just impact those who are around us, although it does do that. Don't freely indulge in sin just because you don't think it's hurting anyone. It most definitely does, and it will eventually come to light. But this is a call for us to recognize that our sins come at the cro- the price of Christ on the cross the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all never should we consider the cross with nothing more than a passing thought it should move you deeply to think of christ on the cross because it was your sin that held him there and it was my sin because of this don't brush sin under the carpet And don't just treat it as a mistake or a character defect. Don't pass over it either. Examine yourself. See your sin for what it is. Don't downplay it as a little sin in comparison with someone else's big sin. Don't excuse it because someone else pushed you to it. Don't continue in it because you are waiting for someone else to to rise to the occasion before you will do what's right. Recognize it for what it is. It caused grief. It brought death with it. It caused the Son of God to be nailed to the cross. Take ownership of that. Repent from it and confess it. Turn away from it. But don't stop there either. Because we do stand redeemed. God will by no means clear the guilty, he says, and it's true but that also means that when the debt is paid it's paid it's not swept under the rug not waiting to rear its nasty head at judgment day it's done going back to that question again what does it help you to believe all this in Christ i am i am righteous before god and heir to life everlasting you are declared righteous before God. That declaration of righteousness is called your justification. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared, legally declared righteous before God. I am righteous. And the knowledge of that redemption brings so much joy and release how often do we have it that we still punish ourselves for what we've done? How often don't we talk ourselves down as worthless and miserable? We don't even deserve to come before God, and we bear the weight of it for years, for decades. We were worthless and miserable, but we aren't any longer. Because of Christ, we can claim this truth as our own. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And our guilt is dealt with. If we were still guilty, yes, we would be hopeless. We would be helpless before the righteousness of a holy God. But for the sake of Christ, we are washed clean. And the prayer, the prayer comes, that comes at the end of our passage here in Exodus 34, a beautiful prayer is answered. We see Moses on hearing this. Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and he worshipped. And then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Though we are a stiff-necked people falling back into sin time and time again, for the sake of Christ, he has pardoned our iniquity and our sin and he has taken us as his inheritance so remember this if you believe in jesus christ maybe you do stand accused by your conscience maybe even satan himself whose name means accuser is standing there whispering in your ear that you are worthless guilty and left without a hope in this world but god himself does not accuse what was a question mark fulfilled by mere shadows in the old testament for the old testament people of god has become a living truth for us in the new testament age because his son jesus christ has paid the price for the sin of everyone who believes in him and in the courtroom of heaven it's not your conscience it's not the devil but his voice is the only voice that matters His blood has paid the price, and His blood has set you free. In Christ, I am righteous before God. Amen.